Sometimes this world makes no sense to me. I'm torn between what others want and what is me. It seems a song is what the world demands, but how can I sing in this strange land? Until I die, I'll sing God's song, living in this Babylon, always looking for the shore of the world that I was made for. The world where the weak are finally strong and the righteous are known for righting wrongs. I want to see this earth start shaking, being impacted by a powerful generation that is finally waking up inside. And on the final day when I die, I want to hold my head up high. I want to look God himself in the eye and tell him that I tried. Well, good morning, everyone, particularly those of you that are a part of our Transit Church family. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Jeff. I'm the lead pastor of the Transit. We say good morning to you. If you are not a part of our Transit family and just viewing in, uh, we're glad that you're here. Uh, we hope that you've been encouraged by our worship through singing, and we hope that you have been encouraged uh, as you continue to worship with us through the opening of the word. Uh, we are, we have been in the book of Daniel uh, for a little bit of time. Actually, we started it back in February took a short break, and we are jumping back into Daniel this morning, and we're in chapter 7. So as is our tradition, I'm going to have you turn to those verses. They'll also be on the screen. We're going to read uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 8 together, and you can appease me by doing that wherever you are. Let's read the words of God together. In the first year of Belshazzar, king, a king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told us some of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and the four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion, had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear, it was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked and behold, another, like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. And after this, I saw in the night visions and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth that devoured and broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little horn, which before, uh, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we pause and say thank you. Uh, we thank you. We thank you every week for the technology that allows us to be in one place and to broadcast to, to our folks who are distributed all around the, the D.C. area and really uh, uh, around the country. And so we're grateful for that. Lord, uh, you are everywhere. Joseph prayed that at the end of our worship set, and, and, and we acknowledge that. Lord, we praise you for that, that there's no limit to who you are, and that means that there's no limit to the Spirit's capacity and capability in regards to, to uh, 
making us unified, even in a distributed manner. So God, we pray that you do that today, that wherever we are, whatever posture we have, God, that you bring us together uh, by your spirit, that even though we're separated, we would feel like we would have the sense that we're one church worshiping together. God, we pray particularly uh, that you give us just an attentiveness to your word today. Make us aware, uh, spirit, open our eyes, illumine us to what you want us to get out of this passage and encourage us, encourage us uh, that all the times what we see and the, the, the chaos of our world uh, uh, isn't the last word. Lord, you get the last word, and it's a word of hope. We pray that in Christ's name. And everyone said, amen and amen. So we're jumping back in the Old Testament book of Daniel. And so if you are just joining us, we actually started this in February. Uh, we took a break just to address some, just some things in regards to the, the coronavirus, getting our hearts just uh, in, in tune with how to deal with that. Mostly we looked at Psalms of Lament. And we're jumping back in. And so if you're not familiar with the Old Testament book of Daniel, it's considered a prophetic book. Daniel, one of the, one of the prophets of the Bible. And uh, this is written by Daniel himself. And it uh, gives the account of Daniel and primarily three of his Hebrew friends who were taken from their home in Jerusalem into exile as the nation of Judah is overthrown by Babylon around 605 BC. We weren't necessarily planning it this way, uh, but as it turns out, the book of Daniel can easily be, be divided into, into really two halves. The first half that we've already covered, the first six chapters of Daniel, uh, have the, you know, many of the popular Sunday school stories that many of you that grew up in church or perhaps you just went to vacation Bible school, you're familiar with these stories. I mean, Daniel in the lion's den. You got the, the mysterious hand that shows up and starts riding on the wall. You have the, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and how God uh, preserves their lives, saves them out of, a, out of a fiery furnace. And really the backdrop of all that are these, these uh, God, this God-given ability that, that God gives Daniel to interpret dreams. And so today we're going to start on the second half of the, the book of Daniel here in chapter 7. And the second half of uh, Daniel, the, the dreams don't actually stop. They actually get weirder. And in fact, in the second half of Daniel, uh, it's actually much more complex because it encompasses the apocalypse, uh, specifically the apocalyptic vision that God gives Daniel. Now, for our purposes in this series, we've been uh, focusing on the theme of faithfulness in exile, and we're liking it to what Israel uh, faced in the ancient Near East uh, to the role that we play as Christians in our current day. Here's what the Bible says about you and uh, about me. It says that we are people in exile. Though we have grown up and lived in, for, for the most part, the Western world, and we enjoy the, the parts of our culture that we get to enjoy, uh, the Bible says that if you have put your faith in Jesus, that if you are uh, a Christian following after him, that this is not your, your home. This is not your eternal home. We grow up here. We live here. We take part in the parts of our culture, but this is not our final destiny, that we have a place that God is taking us to. It's, it's called his kingdom, a place where God rules and reigns over our hearts and the place that he chooses. So the, the, the question that we've been posing throughout this series is how can we the people of God be faithful to the place that God has called us, the culture that God has put us in. At the same time, how can we not give in to its idols? 
And so when we come to chapter 7, one of the things that we realize is that the book of Daniel is not chronological. That the first six chapters, for the most part, were. They were uh, uh, adhering to a chronology of events along the continuum of time. But when we come to chapter 7, really the, the events of the last six chapters, 7 through 12, uh, are interspersed within uh, the chronology of the first six. Case in point, so as we approach chapter 7, we actually go backwards. In fact, you'll see that, that we're, the, the, the text talks about King Belshazzar, which we already were introduced to back in chapter 5. And because we're talking about a different kind of uh, approach or genre of literature here, let me say a couple of words about apoc the apocalypse, apocalyptic literature. We're not strangers to this, I don't think. Uh, if, you're, if you're my age, you might remember uh, the Left Behind series, this series that touted uh, the, the rapture of the church and chaos overcoming the world and this, this man uh, uh, coming to power and sort of having control over the whole earth. Uh, so if you are, uh, have read those books, uh, if you are a parent and have any thoughts of giving those books to your kids, please don't. It took me, uh, I think I was eight books into the nine books of the series before I realized that it was uh, touting a brand of theology about the end times that uh, is not necessarily accurate. I, I wouldn't call it uh, complete uh, fictional writing, but I would prefer you not to get that book if you're part of Transit Church. Uh, if you uh, have not read the Left Behind series, perhaps your grandparents or your, your parents might have tuned into TBN and, and listened to a guy by the name of Hal Lindsey. Hal Lindsey uh, is an end times uh, expert, so to speak. Uh, he's most noted for his book, The Late Great Planet Earth, where he talked about end times theology. And in the likes of the Left Behind series, he, he says that it's going to be you know, the, the rapture of the church, the world gets worse, there's going to be this end times uh, larger than life figure that's going to, to lead everyone astray, particularly, particularly Christians. But closer to home, I, you know, I like to think that this is Marvel movie kinds of stuff. So my family, we watched The Black Panther yesterday, another Marvel movie, and, you know, isn't this kind of like what you'd expect? The world is, is, is going to end. Bad guys on Earth have colluded with bad aliens in heaven. The aliens invade with the, with the earthly bad guys sort of helping them, and everything goes to chaos. They're like tearing everything up, and of course, what do we need? We need somebody, some superhero to come in and save the world. We're not unfamiliar with the apocalypse, but let me commend this to you. The primary point of apocalyptic literature isn't doom and gloom. Everything's going to, uh, you know, it's going to get as bad as it possibly can, uh, and that's coming in the future. That's not what apocalyptic literature, literature is there for, uh, for, our, uh, for our good. The, the, the word apocalypse means unveiling or unmasking. The role of the ancient Near Eastern apocalyptic literature is, is not to unveil something that's necessarily going to happen in the future, but to reveal something that's truer and more real, that's, that's something deeper that we can see with our natural eyes. And so apocalyptic literature is by nature obscure. That's why it's kind of hard for us to discern all the time exactly what's happening or exactly what will happen. But that doesn't mean that we can't make out some of what it's saying. Case in point, in our text, in these first eight verses, and it's going to give us a little clearer picture when we read uh, the rest of the text, it's actually telling us that four beasts represent four kings over four kingdoms that are going to rule over the earth. 
Now, here's our tendency as, as, as people, and we, of course we do this with all of our reading. We're trying to understand and get a grasp of what, this, what these writings are telling us, and so we start picking it apart. And we say, well, if these beasts represent four kings and kingdoms, well, let's figure out who they are. So we start mixing and matching and lining up what we're reading with the history that's gone before and what we think might be happening now with what we guess might be happening in the future. But here's what I want you to know. In this text, and really in any apocalyptic text, text God doesn't tell Daniel those kind of, of details. He doesn't tell him dates or names or specifics of how all these things are going to happen. The details are obscure. And can I say this to you? I think they're obscure on purpose. Because the overarching idea is that God is revealing something to Daniel so that he can see what's going on. But it's also to give him hope. And that's what apocalyptic literature is there for. Apocalyptic literature is not doom and gloom. It's, and one commentator says this, it's a theology of hope to those whom the world has marginalized. Like people like you and me, those of us who are in exile. It reminds us that God is presently on the throne and that he ultimately will triumph. And that's the good news. That's the hope that we all need. And so here's the question. So if God is trying to unveil a truth to us about what's going on in the world and what perhaps may go on in the future and give us hope. All right, so give me some details. What, what is that? What is that and how do we get to it? Let me commend to you three, three things. Here's the first. is that the kingdoms, will, the, the, the kingdoms of our world will come and go. The kingdoms of our world will come and go. That's the natural order of things. Have you ever looked out at nature, plant life, animal life, even cities and nations, they come and go. We see this in, in history. Have you ever checked to see that, the, like in, in the Bible, the, the, some of the nations and peoples of the Bible don't exist anymore. They've been subsumed by other nations and peoples to form new ones. Particularly in our text, uh, it starts off in around 605 BC. Nebuchadnezzar is the, the king of Babylon. He's the one that goes in, overthrows Jerusalem, takes people into exile. Uh, no sooner does his son, Belshazzar, we introduced to him in chapter 5, take over. Years later, chapter 6, Darius, the, the Mede, comes in and he uh, overthrows Babylon and subsumes them into his own nation. And I don't know if you know a lot of history, but here's the thing behind all of these men and the nations they represent. None of them are good kings. And none of them lead nations that have any kind of moral uh, efficacy to them. And so in the succession of these kings, they get increasingly harsher. In fact, what we find about Belshazzar is that he's more arrogant than most of the kings that Daniel has experienced up to this point. And he never comes to any kind of sense of an appreciation uh, or a reverence for the God of the Bible, the, the, the God of creation. And so very likely in this moment, Daniel is thinking, well, my God, what is going on? I got all these visions wrapped around my head. What is going on? And I, he, he's probably saying, you know, I thought we'd be back in Jerusalem by now. I thought you would have sent us some person who's going to uh, just since that, all right, these Jews need to go back to their hometown. Send them back out of exile. And so God comes to Daniel in these dreams, perhaps, in these visions, and he shifts his reality. What's that reality? There's going to be many kingdoms. It's not going to just be Babylon. It's going to be the Medes and the Persians, and, and it's going to be the Greeks, and on and on it's going to go until our time even today. 
There's, gonna, there's a sense that God is saying to Daniel, all right, Daniel, don't sit back and think that you're biding your time until a good king comes and leading a good nation, and they're going to free you into some, uh, some good posture. Because these kingdoms, they're going to come and they're going to go. And so kingdoms will come and go. Here's a second thing that I think we're supposed to learn out of this. All kingdoms of the world are fundamentally the same. All kingdoms of the world are fundamentally the same. I like what Sinclair Ferguson says in his commentary on Daniel. He says, the overarching focus of this chapter, chapter 7, is to focus our attention on the age-long conflict between two kingdoms. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. Just when Daniel is anticipating the deliverance of Judah from its oppression in the form of the return from exile, he learns an important lesson. This conflict is endemic to world history until the end. Rather than decrease, it will be perpetuated until it reaches its zenith in the ferocious blasphemies of the little horn. What is Sinclair Ferguson suggesting? I think he's looking at, you know, the the signs of Daniel's time, superimposing them over even what we experience here today. And he's uh, helping us to understand that, you know, Daniel had probably gotten comfortable with his existence in exile to the point that he's uh, not necessarily not wanting to come out of exile, but he's gotten used to whatever that new normal for him would have been. He's saying to himself, you know what, this isn't so bad. I can survive this a few more years. And so part of this vision is to wake Daniel up, is to shake him to the reality that he himself is in. And so God is allowing Daniel to see there's gonna be kingdom after kingdom after kingdom, and they'll all be fundamentally the same in that, catch this, they'll all be fundamentally the same in that they're not the kingdom of God. They're not God's people in God's place under God's rule in the place that God would choose for them to be. And he should be yearning for this. All these kingdoms would be based on ideas of power and of rule and of dominion and domination and subjugation. And that's not the kingdom of God. Later, Paul would say that the kingdom of God is made up of this. It's, it's righteousness, it's joy, and it's peace. And so just because one king is going away and another comes, Daniel, don't, don't think that these kingdoms are going to be fundamentally different. Here's the third thing, and I'm not even going to comment on this one. The third thing is God is sovereign over it all. And therein is Daniel's hope. And that's our hope too. And that brings us to our text. All right, I know that was a long intro, but I needed to sort of reacquaint you with what we had discovered in Daniel and sort of lay the foundation for where we're going over the next five weeks. And so that brings us to our text. We're going to pick up in verse 9. Here's an interesting point that I want to bring out before we start to unpack the text. Commentators emphasize that Daniel is seeing this, he's seeing multiple visions at the same time. I think of it as, as if you had dual monitors up and each one has a different kind of uh, thing going on, or perhaps another metaphor would be a picture in a picture. And so uh, it's like Daniel is watching a movie in verse one through eight is what's happening in one scene. And that's on one monitor, and that represents the things that are happening on earth. And in the second monitor, uh, like that, that comes and superimposes itself on the first monitor is all the things that are happening in, in heaven. You have the rising and falling of kingdoms on one monitor. All of a sudden, God like shifts that, that vision, and he puts in front of it the things that are going on in heaven with God himself. And that's happening simultaneously in Daniel's vision. Look at verse 9. 
As I looked, Daniel says, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its, flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. And so this is a picture of heaven. Verses 1 through 8 were a picture of the kingdoms of the earth and how God is dealing with them. Verses 9 through 10 are a picture of God in heaven. The Ancient of Days is God himself, and he's sitting in heaven. This is, let me, let me, this is perhaps one of the clearest, uh, uh, most majestic pictures that we have of creator God in all of the Bible. And here's, here's how God unfolds this picture for Daniel. First, he calls himself the Ancient of Days. Ancient of Days literally means one who is advanced in days, very, very old. And, it, and God, of course, is not depicting himself as an old, decrepit man with a cane. He can't move around, so he has to sit down. No, Ancient of Days really gives this picture of, of he's, he's finite. It's a vivid portrayal of, of God's eternal longevity, the everlasting and unending life and the power that he is. Daniel shows that, that, that his vision uh, rather says he has clothing that's like pure white, white as snow. His, his hair is, is, is white as well, as, as pure white as wool. And it's not like my gray hair that's come in because I desperately, desperately need a haircut, as many of us in this, the, the implications of the coronavirus on our, on our lives, right? It's clothing and hair points to how holy God is, to his, to his purity, to his righteousness, and to the, the truth that he is. And the scripture says that there's, there's fire that comes out from under the throne, like flames are coming out from under God. There's wheels on the throne. And it's, they're also burning with fire. The streams of fire that are coming out from under this throne. And this fire, one commentary says, it represents the blindingly bl uh, brilliant manifestation of God's splendor. Isn't that awesome? But also the, the fierce heat of his judgment on sin and on all those opposed to his extreme authority. Because this is a moment of judgment. Verse 1 through 8, that was the kingdoms on earth, on heaven. Verses 9 to 10, this is a picture uh, on earth. Verses 9 through 10 is a picture in heaven. And God is seated on a throne representing his reign and his, and his rule and his authority over all. And then you have this picture of fire coming out that represents uh, his splendor but also his judgment. And then we get the very next words that this is a courtroom scene. And God is sitting in judgment over all that's happening on the earth. In fact, it says thousands, ten, a thousand, thousands, 10,000 times 10,000, that's not a, an exact number. It's saying there is an infinitesimal number of people uh, witnessing what God is about to do. And in fact, one commentator says, God has lined up armies, drawn up in division, and he's awaiting the call to do his bidding. Judgment is about to happen. Look at verse 11. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged 
for a season and for a time. And so these scenes continue to play out for, for Daniel, like right in front of him, as if they were vividly happening. And the sovereign God judges what's happening on earth. And the judgment is the death of the fourth beast, which represents a kingdom, a fourth kingdom on earth. And God brings those kingdoms to an end. Continuing in verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. This is a good example of the role of apocalyptic literature, of how it plays in our, in our Bibles. Daniel is envisioning uh, all these multiple scenes and they're being superimposed over on each other. And, and then he sees a son of man, which for all intents and purposes just means that Daniel sees a male figure. Daniel sees a man, a, a human, a, a dude. The, the man is presented before the ancient of days. The man is presented before God himself. And to that man is given this everlasting kingdom that has dominion over the whole earth. Now, all right, so come back to the 21st century. For us, 3,000 years in the future of this, what's happening in, in, in Daniel's moment, knowing how redemptive history has uh, unfolded up to this point, I mean, who do we think or know that this son of man persona is in, in Daniel's dream? All right, Sunday school answer. All right, type it in your chat. Jesus, right? It's, it's Jesus. We know this to be Jesus. Son of Man is uh, particularly the, one of Jesus' favorite titles for himself, particularly in, in Matthew's gospel. Jesus always calls himself Son of Man. And when he does, it's a direct allusion back to Jan Daniel chapter 7. And so here's what's going on. Daniel sees this vision playing out, multiple scenes happening, uh, unfolding in front of him all at the same time. You have, you have these uh, multiple kingdoms coming to uh, rulership and power on the earth at, one, at different times. You have the chaos of all that's going on on, on earth associated with that. And then you have this resulting courtroom scene where God stands, sits in judgment in heaven, uh, and the sovereign God is going to uh, lay a judgment on all these kingdoms. And then Daniel sees the Ancient of Days giving this son of man power and dominion and a kingdom that lasts forever. Daniel has no revelation this is Jesus. So, all right, don't superimpose that in, in the, in the uh, ancient Near Eastern text. Is it Jesus? Yes, it will, it will be Jesus in redemptive history. Daniel has no, no idea that that is going to be Jesus. And honestly, if God wanted to tell Daniel in that moment, all right, there's this guy named Jesus. He's going to be God incarnate. He's going to live a human life. He's going to do some miracles. He's going to prove that he's dead. He's going to die on the cross in our, in our place for our sin. He, he would have told Daniel in that moment. He doesn't need Daniel to know all that. And so Daniel doesn't know all that. God simply unveils the fact that what's happening on earth with all the chaos and destruction and oppression and slavery, I mean, this madness, it sits under the sovereign rule of a, of a heavenly God. God's in charge of all this, the Ancient of Days. And one day, he's going to, there's going to be one like a son of man. He's going to rule his kingdom forever. That's what Daniel sees. 
And so the question we have to ask ourselves next is, well, does that bring Daniel peace that he knows that, all right, in the, in the future, there's going to be one that's going to set up an eternal kingdom? Actually not. Look at verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. And so he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn that came up and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. And as I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. All right, there's a whole lot there. A whole lot there. I'm not going to go through a whole lot. In Daniel's vision, he's anxious and probably confused as we would be if we're seeing all this unfold before us at any one time. And so what does Daniel do? There, there happens to be an angel somewhere uh, associated with this vision. And Daniel walks over to the angel and asks the angel what's going on. And the angel takes the opportunity to give Daniel an interpretation of that he's seeing, and notably here, Daniel is really, clear, uh, really uh, curious about this fourth kingdom. Like, like, can you give me some clarity about the beast and what's going on with this fourth kingdom and the, and the ten crowns that come up and the one crown that, and the one horn that comes up in the middle of that? And of course, the angel does that. Uh, and notice in your text, this is where the text turns from narrative to poetry, which means it's a different genre of, 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 of literature right here in the midst of, of this narrative that, that, that Daniel is giving us, which means that there's a little bit of creative license going on as well. Verse 23. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. And he shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. Verse 25, he shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into the hand for time, times, and half a time. Most commentators and biblical historians uh, say from the detail we have here in the time period that Daniel lives, uh, we can derive with some clarity who these beasts represent and the kings and kingdoms that were ruling at the time. And so most are very clear that uh, the, the first beast, the one that sort of ended up standing up and, and becoming human-like is, is Babylon. And that kind of concurs with chapter 2. Remember chapter 2, there's a statue that uh, the head was gold, the, the, the midriff was silver, the, uh, the thighs were silver, uh, the bronze, uh, there's iron somewhere, and by the time you got to the feet, it's like an iron clay mixture. This matches up with, with Babylon in their day. 
really from here on out, there's, there's kinds of differences of opinion on who these nations are that are represented in the, the, the first eight verses and the verses we just read. Uh, many would say uh, that the, the second beast is the, the Medo-Persians, which is current day Iran. Of course, the, the Medes and the Persians were different entities that were in uh, factions against each other. Uh, under Darius, the Persian, the Medes were subsumed and they became uh, one nation, modern day Iran. The third empire would be the Greek empire. And after that, there's all kind of uh, differences on what scholars say is this fourth kingdom. Uh, many would say it's probably Rome in their, in their heyday. But when they look closely at that, there weren't 10 Roman kingdoms. There weren't 10 Roman kings. There weren't 10 Caesars that came out of, uh, out of uh, that empire. And so maybe it wasn't Rome. Some, like Hal Lindsey, the Hal Lindsey's of the world, say the fourth beast represents a future kingdom that, that, that's end times related. And so we have yet to see this kingdom um, come into power. And he would also say the final horn is the Antichrist. And you can imagine as, as many people as there are, there are different, um, quote, scholarly, unquote, um, ideas of what all this represents uh, back then and what it even means for us today. I read about half a book on some of this, you know, just the, uh, the ideas that people uh, project. And really, uh, if you read one view, man, that sounds right. If you read another view, man, that sounds right. Can I, can I give you Jeff's take on this? This isn't just Jeff's take. Um, I think a lot of this is crazy, and it's crazy not because I don't trust the Bible. This is inspired writing. We're supposed to uh, look at this and understand it and want to know what God is saying to us. But here's what I think God is saying to us. I think he's saying, uh, grab, uh, going on YouTube and spouting out which nation this is that, you know, that's, that's been in power and what nation is going to come is not the point. I don't think it's ever been the point. What is the point? Here's the point. In future days, there'll be successive kingdoms. We've seen them come. We're going to see them keep coming. Even our own nation, represented as a kingdom on earth. And one of those kingdoms is going to bring an extra level of chaos, an extra level of oppression, an extra level of persecution on the earth, particularly involving the saints of God. Everything in this particular kingdom, uh, everything that this particular kingdom does is going to challenge the status quo, even among the nations. Other nations are going to look and say, wow, this nation is doing things that really shouldn't be done and haven't been done before. And notably, this kingdom would be at war with the people of God. It's going to inflict much suffering to the end of their lives. But then, eventually, look at verse 26. Here's the good news. But the court shall sit in judgment. This is God in his court. And, take his and his dominion shall be taken away. This is the, 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 the little horn that rises up. His dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms of the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. It's, that's the end. Verse 26 and 27 is touting for us the, the end that ushers us into a new heaven and a new earth. If this was a Disney movie, Cinderella would have gotten the prince, they would have gotten married, they're displayed before all the, the I mean, the, the whole land, and everybody's cheering. If this was a Marvel movie, it would have been like the last Avengers, like all the, all the past uh, superheroes would have come back from the, the netherworld, 
but Iron Man would have been resurrected too. And like, it would have been like, they all lived happily ever after. That's, that's the picture that God is painting. Right? This is the end. And so, you know, on earth, this is, the, this, is the, this is what Daniel has seen. On earth, you got kingdoms coming and kingdoms going. And what is the, what is the goal of every kingdom? It's not just to rule and reign, but to do that in perpetuity, to, to last a long time, to reign in power and by dominance. But all these kingdoms are fundamentally the same as far as the Ancient of Days is concerned. And what's the picture that God gives us of these kingdoms? He calls them beasts. But then here's what the scriptures say to us. There's eventually going to come a kingdom. Have you heard those words before? Like in Daniel, it's reminiscent of Daniel 2.44. Daniel 2.40, listen to these words. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and shall bring, uh, and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Chapter 7 is, is, is giving us a different perspective of that same thing happening, of this kingdom that starts small, that's going to grow, and it's going to uh, su uh, superintend over all the other kingdoms of the earth, and it's going to last forever. It's going to eventually become a kingdom that will last forever, and it will be established by a son of man, and it will be internal. I love verse 27. There's a hidden thing in verse 27 that's important for us to, to, to see. God is saying, we not only know who the king will be in this amazing everlasting kingdom, but we too will reign and rule with him. You notice it says that the people are going to reign with him. And what does this mean? It means in Jesus' victory is our victory. In, in, in his power is our power. God is saying, we will not only serve King Jesus, we'll have dominion ourselves. Just like God intended way back in the beginning. You, you see what God is doing? He's, he's giving... Daniel hope, he's giving us hope that the way that God created the earth and it's, uh, the, the order of creation and how it's supposed to be governed and ruled is the place that God will take us to in the very end with Jesus superintending over all of it. I've been reading a lot of Psalms lately and, uh, you know, all the Psalms minister to me. Uh, there's one in particular, uh, I, I just, I love the Psalms because they, they respond to really every genre of literature and respond to really the, the story of redemptive history that we, that we read in our Bibles. Psalm 2 is uh, particularly one that sort of goes well with what we're reading in Daniel. And these kingdoms that, that come and go, that rise and fall, that rulers and kingdoms are coming and going, uh, intending to last a long time, intending to uh, have power and dominance over the entire earth. Here's what Psalm 2 says. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kingdoms of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed one, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrifying them in his fury, saying, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Ask of me, and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, for, uh, now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and, with, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son 
lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. What's the, what's the psalmist saying in Psalm 2? He's saying, all right, kings of the earth, plot all you want. Grasp for power all you want, because the ancient of days, God himself has already chosen the true king. And that king is going to reign and rule the earth, and there's nothing that you can do to stop it. Squabble for power, laugh at what God has, has, has done and is doing, but God is going to get the last laugh, because he's the sovereign judge of all the earth. You know what this is? This is like biblical smack talk. God is saying, you think you got the last laugh? No, I got it. This is good news for us, Trans Church. We look at our world, especially right now, in the moment that we're living in, and we, I mean, I don't know if you say this to yourself, but I, I kind of say, man, this is crazy. Like, even before the coronavirus stuff, stuff was like nuts. We got economic roller coasters, political tensions, wars, terrorism. On top of that, add a global pandemic that's killing hundreds of thousands of people. Interestingly, I don't think this moment in Daniel's day is any more, any, any less crazy than ours is today, or ours any more crazy than the, the day that Daniel is living in. And God is saying to Daniel and to us by extension, know that while the world is seemingly in chaos, God sits in sovereign judgment over it, and one day will send his son to reclaim his throne. Therein is our hope. And so let me close with uh, just three, three points, two points actually. What does this mean for us? What do we do with all this intricate detail and information that fits in, yeah, I mean, even with history? What do we do with this? The first is we live in a world of terrifying beasts. It's to be aware you and I live in a world of terrifying beasts. The day in which we live is not too far removed from Daniel's day or in Daniel's dream, which is to say kings and kingdoms will come and go. And as bad and as treacherous as these beasts in Daniel's vision were made to appear, we in our day can never be naive about the strength and the reality and the durability of evil. That there's evil um, around us and it intends to do evil things on the earth. Evil is ever with us in this fallen world. It's a force of wickedness and harm, and we can never underestimate what it can do. But as opposed to Daniel's vision, where he saw like actual beasts that were transforming into, into other things, and each one of those beasts representing a kingdom got worse and worse. There's more evil being portrayed in, in, his, in his vision. Here's the, here's the problem that we have. The beasts of our day don't look ugly. They have, they have human faces. They're the faces of people who we would, uh, we would be friends with. They're people of corporations that seemingly do good things on our earth. It's the oppression of children through child labor around the world. It's, a, it's the suppression of religion. It's terrorists who, in the name of extremism, seek to kill innocent people to make whatever their statement that they, that they need to make. It's sex trafficking. It's the economic systems of our world that increase the wealth of some and keep many others in poverty. It's global companies that treat employees as if they are commodities just to increase their wealth. It's the brokenness of sin that manifests in our world through global pandemics and sicknesses like AIDS and cancer, and of course, the coronavirus, child poverty, slavery, warfare, hunger. And so open, open your eyes. 
We live in a world of terrifying beasts today. But here's what this vision from Daniel tells us. We will not live in their world forever. Like that deserves an amen, a star, like a smiley face. We, we will not live in that world forever. God has something else in store for us. More importantly, there's going to come a day when all of that stuff's going to be set right, when tyrants are going to be dethroned, when all that's broken is going to be fixed. There's a future day when the hunger of the world will be eliminated. Sicknesses are going to be cured. Every sorrow will find its comfort. And there's going to come a day when even death itself, the very last weapon of this great beast, is going to be overthrown. It's power broken once and for all. So the first thing, we live in a world of terrifying, terrifying beasts. And like Daniel, the scripture is telling us, wake up. Open your eyes and see what you should see. Secondly, this is the word of hope. The son of man is the anchor of our hope. Jesus, he's the anchor of our hope. You know, we're all curious as to, to what the specific entities, the nations that are behind all these different beasts. I mean, we'd be wrong not to at least, at least be a little curious. And some of you have the wherewithal. You're smart enough. You know how to do research that, that, you're, uh, that you want to go check history and, and match the, the beast with the, the, the nations from history, from antiquity, and even, even into the future. We want to speculate what the Hal Lindsay's of the world, uh, if, the, if the days that we live in uh, might not be the world's final hours, because it does seem to, to be getting worse, right? But here's the challenge of Daniel chapter 7, that instead of being fixated on the beast and all these kingdoms coming and going, instead we fix our eyes on heaven. I think that's the picture that Daniel's getting. The chaos of the earth, but the overarching picture of a God in heaven that's seated, ruling, reigning over all that's rightly his. Daniel's vision reminds us that our gaze has to penetrate beyond history into the throne room of heaven. And of course, we have to do this by faith because our eyes will deceive us sometimes. Our eyes, what they see oftentimes tells us this is the reality of what's happening and we'll project that into the future into what we think is going to happen. And even right now, all of us bring circumstances and situations of our lives that are pressing in on us that would tell us of, uh, you know, of a pending reality that we can't escape from. If we were to all sit down and just dwell on the things going on in our lives even right now, this is like devoid of the coronavirus, stay-at-home stuff. It would overwhelm many of us. And so we all need to be reminded of what is beyond and behind. And what is that? It's the very throne room of God. And, and, and this text in Daniel is it's encouraging us. Don't get fixated on the beast. Don't get fixated on these kingdoms. What's going on on the world? Fixate your eyes on heaven. Many of you are familiar with Paul Tripp's uh, book that he published maybe three years ago. Uh, it's a devotion, a morning devotion called uh, New Morning uh, New Morning Mercies. Very uh, just well done um, devotion. So I commend that to you. If you don't know, I'm a Paul Tripp fan. Uh, I think this is around November time frame that this, this particular devotion stuck out to me just because of the, 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 just how well it was written, but also how it just made me worship our Lord. Uh, particularly, it stuck out to me because of how it applies to our text today. Here's what Paul Tripp writes. There simply is no panic in heaven. God is never anxious. There is no confusion in the Trinity. God never wrings his hands and, wash, and wishes he had made a better choice. God never worries about what is going to happen next or stresses over how things are going to turn out. 
God is never surprised or caught up short. He's never in a situation that overwhelms him. God never feels needy or unprepared. God never regrets that he did not do something better. God never fails at a task. He never makes promises that he can't keep. He never forgets what he said or what he wants to do next. God never contradicts himself or fails to be exactly who he said he was. He's all-powerful, absolutely perfect in every way, faithful to every word, sovereign over all it is, the definition of love, and he is righteous, just, tender, patient at all the same time. He's not dismayed or distracted by our panic and our questions. No, the sovereign move of his grace marches on. I mean, firstly, that's just a good writing. That's a man in tune with who his God is. But more importantly, what Paul Tripp is, is displaying to us, professing to us, proclaiming to us is good news. Because we're, I mean, be honest, we're the opposite of all these things. And God is inviting us, look up. I'm not hurried. I'm not rushed. I'm not worried. I'm in control. And that would be our hope. Let me conclude with this. Jesus sits at the right hand, and sometimes, you know, that's all we have. But I think that's all we need. Our hope in this life does not center on the focal points of, of the world and its power, and sometimes that hinders us, perhaps in, particularly in our nation, where we're so divided by uh, the, the lines of politics. I'm liberal, I'm conservative, uh, I'm somewhere in, in between. And so sometimes we will put our hope in our party being in power and that leader doing the things that like, feel right for us. But here we're being commended to not put all of our hopes in that. Rather, that we would center our lives and our thoughts and our hopes on the one who's already on the throne, reigning for us in all his descending power and one who will one day take us to reign with him. That deserves the amen. Like an amen. Here's how Daniel finishes his text. Verse 28. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed. So what's going on? Like, this freaked Daniel out. Like, these visions of upending and chaos and kingdoms and rulers, and then the, the superimposed vision of, of God reigning on a throne and bringing judgment over all of it. I mean, wouldn't that freak you out too? But, but look at the words of how he resolved in his heart. What did he do with it? He says, I, I'm going to keep this matter in my heart. I think we should do likewise. Let's pray. Father, we are, our, our confession is sometimes we get wrapped up in the, uh, in the chaos of our past, in the, in the difficulties of our present, and we lack hope for our future. Sometimes we look through natural eyes and see things as they are and we forget that you're in charge. Lord, would you, through your, through your word, by your spirit, give us a supernatural view of who you are and what you're doing. Lord, you're, you, you don't succumb to the nations of the earth. You're a sovereign God who, who sits in Rawled upon the praises of your people. You're reigning and you're ruling. You have no worry or care. So Lord, help us to tap in by faith to the hope that your scriptures give us for a world that's without end. 
Lord, give us hope beyond what we see and cause that hope to be in Jesus. And it says in his name we pray. Amen and amen. All right, Trinity Church.